Let's try that with the mic on. Hey, there we go. Good morning, everybody. How are you? It's Sunday. I got back from Baltimore at 11.30 last night. That's when the plane landed. No, 11.15. So I'm tired, but I'm glad to be here. Um, starting off, Q&A. Any, anybody got any questions about anything that you want answered? Don't ask when Jesus is coming back. I don't know. What? What is, oh, RSN. That was mine. That's a better answer. That one's scriptural. I don't know. It is not for you to know the times. Whatever. Y'all know that. Okay. Um, he is coming. That's for certain. Anything else? Any other questions? You guys are such an easy group. Um, for those of you who are joining us on our podcast, welcome to Holy Trinity Lutheran Church. Um, this is our adult Bible study on Revelation. We're in chapter 4. Um, I think this is session 12. But, um, and for those of you here who didn't know it, we do post um, our adult Bible study as a podcast. Um, so if you aren't able to make it or whatever and you want to circle back and pick up or you know, find something that I said wrong, um, it's all recorded. You can go do it. Um, we're in chapter 5. Well, we will be. We're still working on 4. <laughs> we got to finish four. <laughs> you know how I work. It's not like we go one session, you know, per sheet. Um, yes, Mary. Don, what's your question that your wife has volunteered you for? Mo oh, thank you. Good question. Which Donna had the broken ankle? Because I prayed about Donna. Not my Donna. Um, it was actually Donna Spencer. Um, they were up in Nebraska visiting with their kids, and she tripped and shattered her ankle. Um, and apparently has had one surgery already and another yet to come. So, yeah, definitely prayers for her because that's going to be a long recovery. Yeah, thank you for asking that. All right, anything else? Um, please do sign in over here on the little sign-in sheet. Um, as I joke, I get paid by attendance. Um, today's devotion, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Help carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will follow Christ's teachings. And so the title of this is Carry Each Other's Burdens. Here's what Mr. Luther, Dr. Luther had to say about that. Everywhere love turns, it finds burdens to carry and ways to help. Love is the teaching of Christ. To love means to wish each other... Per to love means to wish another person good from the heart. It means to seek what is best for the other person. What if there were no one who made a mistake? What if no one fell? What if no one needed someone to help him? To whom would you show love? To whom would you show favor? I mean, whose best could you seek? Love wouldn't be able to exist if there were no people who made mistakes and sinned. The philosophers say that each of these people is the appropriate and adequate object of love or the material with which love has to work. The corrupt nature, or the kind of love that is really lust, wants others to wish it well and to give it what it desires. In other words, it seeks its own interests. The material it works with is a righteous, holy, godly, and good person. People who follow this corrupt nature completely reverse God's teaching. They want others to bear their burdens, to serve them, to carry them. 
These are the kind of people who despise having uneducated, useless, angry, foolish, troublesome, and gloomy people as their life companions. Instead, they look for friendly, charming, good-natured, quiet, and holy people. They don't want to live on earth, but in paradise, not among sinners, but among angels. Not in the world, but in heaven. We should feel sorry for these people because they're receiving their reward here on earth and possessing their heaven in this life. And, of course, the rest of that then is and missing out on what comes later. We, you know, we talked, we talked a couple of times about the, the term that Luther used to describe our sinful nature, and, and you kind of hear that coming out in there. It, it's a Latin phrase, incurvatus in se, which means curved in on oneself which is just a terrific way to understand what sin is. I mean, at its base, sin is about me. And, and you know, when we follow Christ and when we allow him to change us, the, the change that he seeks in us is to turn us outward so that, that our nature is now curved outward toward God and toward others. Hence, love God, love others, the two greatest commandments. So, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the example of love that he gave to us. We pray that you would work in our hearts to turn our focus outward uh, so that we might see our neighbor who is in need and help and love them, um, seeking the best for them rather than the best for ourselves. Um, we pray that you would guide and lead us in that always, that we might glorify your name and please you in all of it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us as we study your word today. Um, guide and lead us through it. Uh, open the eyes of our hearts to understand it and to take away from it the truths that you want us to have. All of it we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. My little thing's not working. There it goes. All right. Um, we are still in chapter 4 of Revelation for a minute. We've got, I think, two questions, which is liable to fill the whole time. Um, we'll see. I, I had the, the handout for the next lesson in chapter 5 is over here if we get to that. So you can grab a copy of that. I think we ha it's gone. I had one or two more copies of the current one, but I'll walk you through stuff. So let's, I'm going to read chapter 4 again for us just to get us back into it so that we've got context for what we're talking about. After this, I looked. This is John writing. He's just finished the, the dictation of the seven letters to the churches. Um, in Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and all those other ones. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches, burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, 
the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We have been through a bunch of these questions. I think we're on 11. Um, before we jump into that, thoughts, comments, observations, concerns, complaints, anything. There's one thing that jumped out at me. This, you, you know, we talked about the fact that here's John getting a vision of the throne room in heaven. And just how overwhelming it is and how difficult it is for him to put in words what it was that he saw and experienced. And so he does his best, you know, he takes a shot at it as best he can, which is very difficult for us to read and to understand and to, and to sort of conjure up a mental image of what's going on. We looked back at, I think it was um, Zechariah or Isaiah or whatever. There's a couple of places where we got images of the throne room in heaven. Um, and, and we saw similar descriptions um, from elsewhere in Scripture, Ezekiel. So, so some of that's helpful. But one of the things that jumped out at me as we were reading it here was this idea that in heaven, in front of the throne, there was a sea of glass. You, you know, what a beautiful image that is, but there's a lot of power and a lot kind of underlying that image that we don't necessarily pick up on. Because for John's readers in the first century there and and really back all the way through Judaism and, and you know for the Israelites going way back the sea was always a symbol of chaos and and oftentimes of evil so so the notion of the sea and, and it being you know in chaos and tumultuous and kind of churning up and all this kind of stuff this picture of being in heaven and the sea being glassy smooth is kind of a picture of God and his control and power and dominion over the elements, including that element of chaos and darkness and evil. Now, the reason it jumps out at me is because if you've been to church already, you know this, but our gospel reading today is Jesus calming the storm, which, which sort of ties in beautifully to this because you've got Jesus demonstrating his control over the forces of nature and over the sea particularly in a way that sort of freaks out the disciples and, and highlights to them his divinity and who he is. Okay. What else? Any other observations from the reading and what we saw? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, cool. So, so he's talking about this idea of omnipresence, right? I mean, we think about the attributes of God, that he's omniscient, that he knows everything, that he's omnipotent, 
that he's all-powerful and that he's omnipresent, that he's present everywhere. And, and I think you're right. As kids, you know, we hear that. We're like, oh, cool, God's everywhere. He sees everything. He's like Santa Claus or whatever, something like that. But, <laughs> right, but, but I, I think you're right. And it's kind of like grasping that idea of presence, right, that it's not just, you, you know, the, the big brother floating in the sky seeing everything. It's that he's actually present with you at all times and in all situations and whenever everything's going on. And that's a powerful, comforting, sometimes terrifying realization, I guess, to know that God's always with us and always present in all places at all times. can be scary. What else? Thank you. What about darkness? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And and. John, in his gospel particularly, uses this, this whole light-dark motif a lot. But, you know, you do see it play out that, that the deeds of, of evil people tend to happen in the darkness and things, you know, in the nighttime is when bad things happen and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, there's a, probably a nugget of that, this idea that maybe God can't see me if it's dark outside, you know? Um, with, yeah, with the, well, or with the doors closed, yeah, right? Then, then I have some privacy, finally, from this omnipotent, omnipresent God. Say, say it again. What was... I, I, I can't say authoritatively if it was a tenet of Judaism, but it's, it's certainly pervasive in Scripture. You see it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If we're under, if we're under cover of darkness, we can get away with some stuff. Yeah. What were you going to say, Mac? Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, good point. So so there, there's the flip side of it, right? That, that we talk about sin and evil and stuff like that being tied to darkness. Um, near death or experiences that people often relate seeing a, a bright light as a positive thing creation happening in light and all that kind of stuff. So that whole light-dark motif plays out a lot in Scripture. We see that. Yes, Elaine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Terrifying, too. <laughs> People walking on these glass walkways over huge chasms and gorges and stuff. Is there, oh, that's right. There's one at the Grand Canyon where you can walk out over the canyon and look down. And it cracked. You're right. I remember that story. See? Wow. All right, so the question then is, for what reason... This is down toward the end, okay? We're getting toward the end of chapter 4, so understand kind of where these questions are coming from. For what reason did Moses return from the fire and smoke of God's presence on Mount Sinai? Somebody look up Exodus 19 verses 16 and 21. 16 and 21. Um, verse, tw did you get 21? Okay. 
Okay. I'm going to read it again just for the podcast here. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. This is right after the exodus from Egypt, okay? The Israelite people have come across. They've, they've made it out. There was the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's people and all that kind of stuff, and they're at the base of Mount Sinai. And the Lord and Moses has gone up onto the mountain, which is shrouded in smoke and, and fog and everything. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. So why did Moses return from the fire and the smoke of God's presence? He was sent back for a reason. Yeah, he was sent. Why? Okay, so he had seen the Lord and he hadn't perished. That was like stunning all by itself. And then God sends him back. He goes, dude, you've got to go back down and tell them not to come up here. Why? Because if they come up here, they're going to die. Yeah, Moses gets special dispensation. He actually gets to meet with God face to face. And if you remember, in Exodus, when, when Moses would, he'd be up on the mountain, hanging out with God, you know, talking, all that kind of stuff. When he came down from the mountain, his face glowed, and it freaked everybody out so that he would veil his face. Yeah, he would cover his face because it just freaked everybody out. They couldn't deal with it. Now, in this passage, if I'm remembering right, so this is Exodus 19. 15 is, is you know, kind of right after they come across the, the Red Sea. So we're real close to that. Um, Basically, the, the Lord has descended on Mount Sinai. He's covering it, and it looks like fire and smoke and all that kind of stuff covering the mountain, and he calls Moses up there. But before he does, he makes a point of saying, basically, you've got to build a fence. You need to keep people out. They are not to come up here. Only you get to come up here. And you need to make sure they understand it, because if they come too close, they're going to die. Okay. So, so this is, you know, Moses has gone up on the mountain. He's talked to God, and God says, now, listen, I wasn't kidding about this. You've got to go back down and tell them. Make sure that they know they're not to come up here, because if they do, they're going to die. And, and I love the way he puts it, too. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look. Like, isn't that just like us? We're so curious, we want to go see. I just got back from all this time in Baltimore, so I spent a lot of time in places with big crowds, you know? Airports, among other things. But just to watch how people behave in big crowd situations and stuff like that and the things that they do. They're curious. They want to go see. They don't care really about rules and regulations and all that kind of stuff. You know? Woo! God's up there. I'm going to go check it out. Yeah? Yeah, so, so it's kind of like... It's like levels of holiness, right? Um, this idea that you don't just kind of bop on in and visit with God. You, I mean, you've got to have an appointment, right? <laughs> kind of. Um, the, the idea that, you know, that there's... The temple is a real good example of this, actually. If you look at the layout of the temple in Israel, there's kind of this, you know, you start... Let's start in the center. At, at the Holy of Holies, that would be where the, the Ark of the Covenant lives. It's where God's presence is. In the, in the innermost chamber of the temple is the holiest place. That's Holy of Holies, by the way, is a very Hebrew way of saying that. Um, King of kings, Lord of lords. 
in Hebrew, that's sort of a, it's an, an emphasis, an emphatic way of saying something. So the Holy of Holies would be the holiest place. Okay? So that's the center of the temple. You go out from that a little bit, and there's another, there's the, the like a, an extra chamber out there for the burning of incense and all that kind of stuff, but only priests go into that place. Priests only go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he reads... Only one priest, and if you read some of the stuff about it, I mean, it's like the most terrifying duty. You, you drew the short, short straw if you went in for that, right? Because truly, I mean, you're, it is essentially walking up onto the mountain. You're going into the place where God has said his presence is in order to make atonement for the people. And so there's a whole process that wraps around that of sacrifices that you've got to make for your own sins before you can go in there. And, and then they, you know, they put little bells all over you so that they can hear you moving around because if you stop, you know, whew, we got to pull them out. And there was a rope. There was a, truly, I'm not making this stuff up. There was a rope tied to your ankle, right? So when you go in, if the bells stop ringing, like if God struck you dead, they can at least pull your body out. <laughs> Y'all are laughing at me, but I swear it's true. <laughs> They had to cleanse themselves. There was a whole ritual purification thing. It was a big deal. So anyway, that's the Holy of Holies, right? And then you've got the, the incense and all that kind of stuff just outside of that. A little bit further outside of that, you've got the, the area, what was it? The altar, yeah. The altar where the sacrifices are happening, where the people can watch, where the priests are doing their stuff. Then you've got the congregation is there, the assembly of the people. You step a little bit further outside of that, and the Gentiles are in the, that court, you know, or the women are in that court. I don't remember how it goes. But, you know, basically there's these kind of rings of holiness. And so at the, at the center of the rings of holiness, like the most holy place is where God is, and, and that's pretty elite territory. And so Moses is given this opportunity to come into God's presence on Mount Sinai, but it's something that God says, this ain't for everybody, y'all. I need Moses because I'm doing something through him right now. And, and, you know, it happens. Holiness, by the way, is an interesting concept. What does it mean to, what does it mean to be holy? Righteousness, sinless, set apart is an excellent translation. To be holy is to be set apart somehow or another separated. There's, there's a phrase that we use in the baptism rite. It's the prayer at the end of the baptism rite where we pray for the, the child or the person who's been baptized that they might be kept safe in the holy ark of the Christian church, separated from the multitude of unbelievers. In other words, made holy, separated from those who are not. So holiness and consecration and all, you know, all of that stuff is about being set apart, made special. Now, are you holy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So through Jesus, through your baptism, you have been consecrated. You have been made holy, set apart as something different. Back to the baptism, right? Marked on your head and on your heart with the cross of Christ to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. You have been made holy. And we see it at the crucifixion. As Christ dies, what's one of the big things that happens? That the curtain is torn in two. That curtain is the curtain between the outside and the holy of holies in the temple. 
And, and you know, this is a big woolen woven curtain that's about the width of, I mean, like the thickness of my hand. This is a pretty serious piece of gear. And when Christ dies, that thing rips in two from top to bottom, by the way, symbolizing the opening of heaven to all of us, that we can come before God with our prayers and our petitions and all of that kind of stuff. We do it through Christ. He's our mediator. Cool. I don't think this is anything like what the author of this study thought we'd talk about here, but that's okay. So, our, Moses comes down from the fire and smoke with God's presence to warn people you don't want to be in God's presence. Relevant because in chapter 4, where is John? Totally in God's presence, isn't he? He's in the throne room of heaven looking at the one who sat on the throne, who clearly is God. For what reason? So, so where does this get John? For what reason do you think John returns from his vision to write Revelation? Why does he write this thing? All right, chapter 7, verse 3, they point us to, right? Oh, chapter 1, verse 3. So many notes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. This is why I read it every week, by the way. And blessed are those who hear. This is why I read it again every week. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Meaning what? He's coming again. So why does he write this? Is it a warning? Or is it a promise? <laughs> John's got the right answer. It's both. <laughs> right? I mean, it, there is warning to this, right? I mean, there is a fear aspect. Do you remember in the first session, one of the first things I said, I always like to start a study of Revelation with this. Revelation is a book of comfort. And most people look at me like Elaine's looking at me. <laughs> and they're like, huh? A book of comfort? Revelation? That weird book with all the fire and the horsemen and the, all that crazy stuff? That's a book of comfort? Yeah, it is. Because the basic message of, of Revelation is your faith in Jesus Christ is rightly placed. Or, or as somebody else said even a couple of weeks ago, Christ wins. Right? So, so you get this revelation given to John by Jesus of all the stuff that's coming so that we have confidence in the fact that our faith in Jesus Christ is going to take us exactly where we want it to, and that is to the new heaven, to the new earth, when we will be resurrected and be able to live for eternity in God's presence. And so John has all this stuff for us. Now, as John was saying, this John back here, <laughs> there is an element of warning in it too. And you, and you certainly heard it in chapter three, 2 and 3 with the letters to the churches because there's warnings in there about keeping the faith, about being, you know, not um, mucking up doctrine with all kinds of junky stuff and, you know, not following false prophets and all this kind of business. So there is a word of warning, but the warning always is accompanied by and kind of points you to the promise of Christ and the, and the positive comfort of knowing that in the end um, you're going to be just fine. It is, by the way, the message of the gospel reading today. 
that, hey, if you're with Christ, nothing bad's going to happen to you. Death doesn't even have any sway over you anymore. You can die, and it'll be okay. I, I mean, that's really the message, isn't it? And it, that's a weird one to say, but it's true. Because the time horizon that God operates on is not like to death. It's to eternity. And so death, okay, just gets me to God a little quicker. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I read that in a book somewhere. Right, right. Death doesn't change your mind. Yeah, yeah. So death becomes, you know, it's just another part of the whole story. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and to that point, death sucks. I, I mean, I think it's important to say that that bluntly. Because death was never part of God's plan. That's not what he wanted. Right? Death wasn't, you know, death comes after the fall. It wasn't part of the plan to begin with. And so yeah, death is awful. Death reminds us of the fall. It reminds us of our sin. It reminds us of all of that. But then Christ comes and he erases that power too so that we know that beyond that is something better and, and more. So it, it's not like a bookend that finishes the story. Thoughts? Y'all feeling better now? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Do y'all know the story of the fork? Have I told you about the fork? In my office, if you come in there, there's a plant um, in, front of the, in front of the window in my office. Um, and if you look closely at the plant, you will find a fork. It's a very nice antique silver fork stuck in the, in the soil. And, and, and it's subtle. You don't notice it unless you're looking for it. Now y'all are all going to look for it. But, but I love it when people walk in and go, Pastor, what's up, what's up with a fork? And the story is this. There was a young woman who had a terminal form of cancer. She knew she was going to die. And so she was working with her pastor to plan her funeral. And they went through everything. They planned all the hymns that she wanted. They picked all the readings that she wanted to have. They put together the liturgy to make sure that all of it pointed to Christ. It was terrific. And as she was leaving, she said, Now, Pastor, there's one more thing. And he goes, All right, that's cool. And she said, In my casket, I should like to have a Bible in my right hand. And he said, yeah, sure, I get that. And a fork in my left hand. And he said, okay. She said, you want to know about the fork, don't you? And he goes, I'm a little curious, yeah. <laughs> she said, when I was a little girl, we used to have these big family get-togethers. And we'd put up tables all in the garage, and everybody, all the cousins would come over, and all the kids would come over, and we'd have this tremendous huge meal together. It was always wonderful. And at the end of the meal, my aunt would walk around, or one of my aunts would walk around, and they would pick up the plates, and they would say, Save your fork. The best is yet to come. And I knew that when my aunt said, Save the fork, that something amazing was going to be coming yet. She said, When I die, I want people to remember that the best is yet to come. And that's why I want to have a fork in my hand in my casket. Now, that story, the first time I heard that story, it was a sermon illustration um, used by a, a pastor named um, Pastor Reichel, who was an interim pastor for us at my home congregation. He preached 
Now, the timing's a little bit strange in my head versus Donna's memory of it. But my recollection is that was the sermon illustration that he used when he preached on Maundy Thursday. Now, it may have been a little bit earlier than that. But part of the deal was that he handed out plastic forks as you walked in the door. So everybody had a fork. And, and our small group that met together, that kind of became a thing for us. And a lot of people in the congregation carried their forks in their purse or whatever. They always had a fork with them. And it was just a reminder of that. And in our small group, anytime any of us lost somebody important to us, the group would give them a fork, a, a flower arrangement with a fork in it. So we have, we, now on our wall at home, we have forks for my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. The one in here was the fork that was given to me when my mom died. So, so that's kind of where that comes from. You're, you know, the fork was a, a reminder that the best is yet to come. Um, and I, that's part of what John is doing in Revelation. He's handing us a fork, you know, reminding us that there's something more after all of this stuff that we go through that we look forward to. That's our hope. And our hope is, you know, not this sort of contracted version that modern American Christianity has that you die and go to heaven. It, it, it's something much greater and more important and more astonishing and wonderful and beautiful than that. It's the idea that I die and I'm with Christ and then one day he raises me bodily from the dead and gives me my body back perfect. Can't wait for that. And gives me back my body perfect and I get to live in my body with Christ for the rest of time, which is like forever. For eternity. Wow! That's our hope. How big and amazing and fabulous is that? That's what we look forward to. That's the hope, and that's what John's talking about. Seven minutes we've got here. Can I do, can I do one question in seven minutes? Yes, Betty. Oh, I've seen those before, yeah. Does it carry the same meaning? These big wooden carved fork and spoon? Either that or they ate really well there, right? <laughs> I have seen those, though. They're cool. They are cool. My father-in-law used to fly through the Philippines, and he, he had seen those too, yeah. All right, question number 12. How do the following verses express the honor and glory to be given to God? Remember, in, the, in chapter 4 of Revelation, you've got the 24 elders who fall on their faces and worship God and give glory and honor to Him. And remember, we talked about those 24 represent the entire church of God throughout time. 12 Old Testament tribes of Israel, excuse me, and 12 apostles in the New Testament, so it's kind of all of God's people. So, Romans 16:27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Um, you're going to sense a theme here in a second. Ephesians 3.21 To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Galatians 1.5 To whom be the glory forever and ever. Are you picking up on the trend? Jude 1.25 To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So how do all those verses express the honor and the glory to be given to God? <laughs> Say it again, Elaine. <laughs> on and on and on, forever and ever. 
I like that Jude captures this idea of before all time and now and forever, sort of capturing eternity in all of its aspects. That's pretty cool. But I, I like the eternal aspect of all of those readings, that the, the, the encouragement is that we honor and worship and glorify God always, always. See, look at that. One question in two minutes. When do, now, the, this might be a homework assignment. When do you feel that you are giving the greatest honor and glory to God in your day-to-day living? How do we live out our faith? And when do you feel like you're doing that most thoroughly? Oh, in prayer. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of when you feel closest to God and like you're obeying a commandment to pray. Okay. What else? Oh, okay. So just observing God's creation and sort of appreciating everything that he's made. Yeah. And, and glorifying and recognizing him for what he's done. Good. I like that. What else? Ken. Okay, yeah, so when, when you're doing something you're really good at, that, was a, that you know was a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but whatever it is. Well, for you, like carving, wood carving. That's a thing that you're good at, that God made you good at. When you're doing that, you kind of feel close to God, don't you? Yeah. I, I sometimes, I mean, this sounds stupid, but um, I, I'm, I'm a computer programmer. I mean, that's what I did for years and years and years. And, and, you know, you get in the zone and you start writing code and stuff like that. I mean, that for me can sometimes has been kind of a spiritual experience. And it, I think you're right. There's, and, and for other people it wouldn't be. But, you know, part of it is sort of when you're, when you're aligned with how God made you, with the gifts that he gave you and the talents that you have, when, when you're doing something that lines up with those things, I think that's one of those, that's when we kind of feel like we're closest to God. Because we're sort of walking in the, in the path that he created for us. And i got nothing biblical to back this up. But I think that when we get to heaven, because remember, we're going to be bodily resurrected, right? You know, flesh and blood. That we'll get to do all the things that we love to do. Whatever they might be. And everything will work perfectly. So I'll write code with no bugs in it. Right? And whatever that is, I mean, whatever your thing is, you'll get to do it and you'll love it. It'll be awesome. It is. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, the, the effort that we expend toward it. So, and here's what I would offer. God created us to work. Right? And that was it. You know, he made Adam specifically to work the garden. And so part of the reason I think that we feel fulfilled when we work at something and overcome the challenges of getting it done is because that's what God made us to do. His expectation is that we would work. I'd like to be lazy too, so I don't know what to say about that. But <laughs> All right. A day of rest. Yeah. Okay. We'll See, we never even made it to chapter 5. Next week, we'll pick up with chapter 5. Any last-minute questions, observations? Ken? 
Oh, yeah, the white cow. Yeah. Which, it was a thing, right? It was that, that was y'all's thing. Yeah. If, if y'all knew, and if you were at Pat's funeral, you know about it, that there was a white cow with dirty knees that came from an observation she made on a, on a motorcycle ride one day, wasn't it? She looked out and she said, you got to tell me if I get the story right, Ken. But she looked out and she said, you ever notice that white cows always or never? Always have dirty knees. Yeah. Otherwise, they look pretty good, but they always have dirty knees. And so there were lots of white cows with dirty knees, weren't there? Yeah. Cool. Any other thoughts, observations, questions? Thank you. I love this. I love the time we spend together, and I love the just wrestling with God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I give you thanks and praise for the fellowship that we share, that you have called all these people together into your church, that you have surrounded us with other believers who also love you, and you have strengthened one another as iron sharpens iron, as we have shared our observations, our experiences, our knowledge and expertise of your word and of the ways that you work in our world. We thank you so much for the ways that you bring us together, for the community that you create, and for the love that you put in the midst of us. Uh, We pray that as we go forth from here, you would guide and lead us in everything that we do, that your love might shine through us and that others might come to know your Son because of what we do. Um, So we ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. See you. Okay, so next week we're back here in this room. For two weeks we're here. And then, no, that's not right. Next week we're here. July 4th we're back in Classroom 1. Okay? Thank you. Blessings.